This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribs. I'm here with Chris Funderberg, and we're going to be talking about a particularly brilliant piece of snail smut tonight. We're going to be talking about 1957's Deep Water, written by Patricia Highsmith. Uh, Chris, would you agree that this has possibly the sexiest passage of snails getting it on ever committed to the page? I I would describe it as romantic more than sexy. I think it has the most tender love scene between snails ever ever filmed, possibly ever conceived of. It's genuinely romantic, that scene. That I'm snail love that. is is beautiful. I don't know if it's sexy except in like sort of that like 70s softcore, you know, like Euro art sexy, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Well, like anything with Highsmith, you know, I think that she, you know, uh, it should be noted, it was a, an avid, uh, an avid snail collector herself. And in fact, named the two lead snails of this book after her own uh, favorite snail pets. Uh, take something that she obviously loved and was very interested in and then fictionalized it in a way that made it super creepy because it uh, is the fascination of the main character of this book who is... Uh, um, not all there as most uh, Patricia Highsmith characters are. Um, but we previously talked about This Sweet Sickness, which is another one of her great books. Uh, and I just want to start off before we get into the plot of this by saying the parallels are really interesting between that character and this one, uh, Vic Van Allen, who is the main character of this book, uh, in a way that uh, they both have idealized ideas of domesticity and living uh, in a married life but both of them have very different ways of forcing that to happen. Uh, and most interestingly, I think Vic is somewhat less successful and uh, never really gets what he wants. Do you agree with that? I think that's too big of a question to answer before we go into our aperitifs and the plot of the book and all of that sort of thing, John. You sort of, you just opened up the entire question. <laughs> for for the thing. I think we need to get our table setting out of the way before we dive that deep. Okay, so I was trying to clear the table of the sweet sickness is what I was trying. <laughs> well, yeah, we talked about the sweet sickness before. I think the little bit of, of uh, setup that we need is to say that, uh, I don't know about for you, but Patricia Highsmith is one of my very favorite crime writers. And we can talk a little bit about whether the description of her as a crime writer, whether ghettoizing her in that way is fair or not, because she's better than most crime writers. And I think that uh, the reason we're, we're doing uh, more Patricia Highsmith books and continuing to do Patricia Highsmith is that A, there's a lot of film adaptations around them. And so the film literary confluence makes a lot of sense. There's a, a new Adrian Lyne, Ben Affleck adaptation of Deepwater that's supposedly coming out sometime. It was originally scheduled for November of 2020 when we're recording this and got pushed and we just decided to keep do the episode anyway. Um, I think that she's really, really uh, a great writer. I think she's a very interesting writer. And I think especially the further you go in her career, the um, less she's even a crime writer, where something like Edith's Diary, which is a really spectacular book, just a really 
super blunt force impactful book is not a crime novel you know any more than than something any more than something like like uh, virginia wolf is you know, a, a crime novelist, you know, uh, that if there are elements of immorality or violence in it doesn't, doesn't mean that it's a, a crime novel. And that's especially been, been driven home when we started the podcast to talk about genre cinema or genre, when we started this uh, second episode of the podcast a month to talk about genre writing, um, I love genre fiction. I love reading genre fiction. At a certain point, you read a lot of it in a row and you go, this is shit, this is bad writing. And I felt like in particular on, uh, I had read a few just in combination with the podcast and then things I had read on my own. I read about six shitty, poorly written novels in a row that that firmly belong in the uh, ghetto of uh, crime fiction, of genre fiction. And I wanted to get out of it for a moment is, is kind of why I wanted to do this book. And especially after we had done This Sweet Sickness, which is one of my favorites. But um, John, we pair every uh, book we talk about on this uh, show with an aperitif, which is something to ingest a piece of media, a book, a movie, an album, a painting to ingest before you read the book for our listeners, uh, pairing for them, and then a dessert pairing at the end after we've talked about the book to top it off or take you out uh, of it. John, what is your aperitif to pair with Deep Water? by Patricia Highsmith. So I'm going to do a thing that I often do on this podcast, which is offer two possible aperitifs because neither of them is exactly right. But together, it may be that they mingled at a little party together. Uh, you could kind of get the sort of idea of deep water. Um, the first one is uh, Mike Lee's Abigail's Party, which oh. uh, is the play that he wrote and then uh, filmed he doesn't consider it a proper film because really it's just a recording of the stage, uh, the, the the play as it, as it exists. But it, uh, it's very, very famous. Obviously, it launched him big time in England when it aired on television. And Abigail's Party is the story of Beverly Moss and her husband, Lawrence, who have invited three of their neighbors, a young married couple and a sad divorcee named Susan, over for drinks while Susan's teenage daughter, Abigail, is having a party back at their home. Uh, and as more booze is consumed and tensions start to get high. We kind of see this marriage, uh, all that seems kind of become visible and things, uh, jealousy and resentment and things start to kind of come to the surface as uh, the 90 minutes or so of the play go by. Uh, this book has a lot of parties in it also, a lot of um, invited people over for drinks and people staying way too long and certainly the marriage in this book starts to show it seems very early um but of course abigail's party is nothing like a uh crime story at all um so i would pair it also with although it does have as many deaths at the party true as, true as this it movie does, has deaths does, at the does party. culminate in a spousal death that is true maybe um, just off camera the husband got a hold and slipped something in the drink to cause the heart attack what about that john Never thought of it that way. We'll have to ask Mike Lee sometime. I'm sure he would be open to answering any I interpretations like of his work. We need to get that body in front of the inquest so I can make this accusation in court 
in open court. <laughs> uh, the second movie I would say is Fassbender's film Martha, um, mm. which tonally is very similar, has a sort of similar uncomfortableness, I think, to this story. Uh, that's, a, that's a film about um, yeah, Margaret Cardison playing a virginal 30-something librarian who ends up getting married to Carl Bohm, who played the psychopath in Peeping Tom, as Helmut, who is a domineering sadist who makes her read boring books about damn engineering. Uh, and it becomes a very kind of complicated relationship where he obviously is a monster who is completely taking over her life and gets off on her pain and her agony. Um, but her struggle is very inward and it's hard to describe her character. I wouldn't say that it's something that she's actually becoming used to or encouraging, but it kind of becomes obvious that as this is the only sort of love relationship she's ever been in, it's difficult for her to process it and even to communicate what's going on to her friends. Um, I think we brought this one up when we talked about Waltz into Darkness because it was appropriated from a short story written by Cornell Woolrich, yes. which uh, Fassbender did not, uh, was not upfront about it originally, but uh, like Deep Water, it's the story of marriage um, and specifically the husband trying to take some kind of control uh, much more successfully than the character in this book. But um, definitely the queasiness factor, I think is pretty much the same as you're watching these films, uh, watching the film as you're reading the book. So those would be my, my aperitifs. Chris, what do you got? My uh, aperitif pairing leans more into the, the crime uh, noir elements uh, of the book than yours did, which is I would uh, pair it with another story of somebody who takes credit for criminal activity that is not his and is sort of enjoying the uh, uh, respect and change in attitude that it's conferred on him uh, until reality encroaches. And that's Red Rock West, John Dahl's movie in which Nicolas Cage uh, arrives in a uh, small town and is mistaken for Lyle from Dallas, who is obviously a bad and dangerous person, uh, is hired to, uh, to kill uh, uh, the wife of this bar owner, played by the great J.T. Walsh. And from there, things obviously go amiss. And that leads into the plot of Deep Water, which is that you have Victor Van Allen, or Vic, and he is married to Melinda, uh, there's a slight age difference between them. Uh, I think she's 28 and he's 36. Pretty normal for the 1950s. But she is somebody who cheats on him constantly and flagrantly in front of their friends and neighbors. She's introduced uh, dancing at a party with one of her paramours. She uh, brings the men home and um, the strange aspect of their relationship is that uh, Vic sort of pretends like what's obviously happening is not happening. He sits up with the uh, with his wife and her lover uh, as they get drunk in the living room and sort of excruciatingly waiting for him to go to bed, which he refuses to do. They have separate bedrooms. Uh, she, she has a bedroom upstairs. He's built a little bedroom in the garage uh, next to his beloved snails. And he's an intellectual. He un runs, a, he's rich uh, sort of from a family inheritance. He has an income uh, as he calls 
calls it. Um, and he runs a little vanity press that publishes uh, five or six books a year uh, of poetry, of things like that. They're very well regarded uh, within the industry as being an incredibly high-end, high-quality little company. It's run with him and two other employees. And he's an intelligent person. His best friend, Horace Meller, is uh, also an intellectually somehow associated with the medical profession. He knows people at the Columbia University Psychology Department. They have conversations about brain surgery. And Vic is very well respected within the community, although he's seen as being a little bit different and a little bit of an oddball. And everybody is sort of waiting for Vic to do something about Melinda's constant mean-spirited, cruel philandering. She is in the long tradition of Patricia Highsmith's just awful girlfriends and wives uh, that you see in Cry of the Owl and the Blunderer and all throughout Little Tales of Misogyny that, that she really pairs people up with uh, her, her anti-heroes up with people who are capable of just sort of bottomless cruelty and selfishness. That selfishness is a quality that she portrays very acutely in people. And um, the big change in the book is that Malcolm, Rick Malcolm McRae, one of Melinda's former paramours, a rich guy who lives down in New York City, is found dead in his apartment. And Vic takes credit for the murder. He tells uh, Ralphie, little Ralphie, uh, Melinda's current boyfriend, that he murdered Mal. And Mal being a, a haberdasher and formerly half of a professional brother-sister magic act. Yes, who was stolen away from the magic act by Melinda. There's a, a very small, faint backstory about an angry sister who had her career in magic ruined by Melinda <laughs> as well. And this scares the hell out of Ralphie. Who, who backs off from Melinda at this point. And the rumor starts to spread around town that Vic has committed this murder. And it starts to change how the community reacts to him, how it interacts with him. And then from there, about midway through the book, Melinda's taken on a new lover, Charles Delise, a greasy, thin, gaunt, little Italian bar piano player. He's Billy Joel's piano man who's in town for the, uh, the summer with the playing at the, the classy local bar that she goes to pick up men. They're at a party because she invites all of her paramours to parties as her guest and just really throws it in Vic's face. Vic and uh, Charles Delis are alone in a swimming pool and Vic drowns him just grabs him and holds him under the water. It's been established that Charles Delis is a little bit of a weak swimmer and goes under and Vic gets out of the pool, goes inside and no one has seen them. Charles' body is found later and no one suspects that he murdered him. It doesn't cross anyone's mind except for Melinda who accuses him in open court during the inquest of having murdered Charles Delis. Uh, 
of having done it and then teams up with a local dyspeptic dime crime novel writer, Don the Dragon Wilson, just Don Wilson, teams up with two higher private investigators on Vic's own dime to investigate him and try and pin the murder for Charles Delise on him. And so at this point, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Vic because I think one thing that we should mention is that he, before he murders Charles in the swimming pool, he is cleared of the, the murder of Malcolm McRae. Someone else is arrested for that. So it's interesting in this community that they live in, which is called Little Wesley in Massachusetts, I guess is sort of a fictionalized version of Wellesley a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and it's a so suburb the- of Wesley. So there's a lot of going between Wesley and Little Wesley in this book. And yeah. Wesley is seems like a moderate-sized town. And then Little Wesley is the fancy, high-end part of town where all of the proper, rich, good, important sort of couples lives and has important parties. Right, exactly. Um, so this community of Little Wesley, after he has said he has killed uh, this former lover, as you say, they look at him a little bit differently. Even Horace, who... Uh, it's pretty sure he's joking is a little bit wary of him at that point, but then they learn that it wasn't him and everyone's like, Oh, okay, we get it. And it sort of affects their reaction to the next murder where it kind of is already in their mind of like, Oh, well he already claimed to have done this previous murder. We know he didn't do it. And we were assholes for thinking it was true. And we were, yeah, to shun him, we were jerks. So they have sort of this communal sort of uh, we've been through this and we have already labeled him not a murderer. And we feel Um, guilty that we ever entertained it. And his horrible, horrible wife is driving this. And really, I think everyone agrees he should kill her. Yeah. (laughs) It's sort of the community sentiment. A lot of the humor of this book comes from like the supporting characters reactions to uh, implications that uh, he is a murderer. Uh, He almost becomes a man above suspicion after, you know, he's cleared of the first murder. And it's uh, funny because it reminds me of uh, the end of Cemetery Man. You know, you've got a gun. Great. You could defend yourself against the killer. Yeah. Um, where, you know, it just becomes absurd that these guys, even though he's the last one seen with this victim and then a later victim, uh, everyone just assumes that he could not have possibly been involved. Uh, and I think the main reason for that is that Highsmith sets up this, uh, what she which she calls unnatural sexual abstinence in Vic. Um, so that he doesn't, react to things like a jealous husband or he doesn't give them the classic motive everyone is so familiar now with the way that melinda acts and the way that vic responds or doesn't respond to it yeah you know and they're even kind of grabbing him saying vic you can't let her do this you know she is completely humiliating you and he's responsive yeah what are you gonna do around most people makes him seem like an oddball but not like someone who would have homicidal intentions well, towards these paramours. interesting. Early in the book, it sort of shifts. Because early in the book, Vic says there's the line, people who do not behave in an orthodox manner, Vic thought, are by definition frightening. And when he's thinking about, I think I frighten people a little bit, that's when he has that thought. And it's just because I'm a nonconformist. That's something that's really important in his head is being a nonconformist uh, in this book as well. But it shifts midway through where him being unorthodox and being a nonconformist is used as a shield that the whispers around town that are repeated back to him by his daughter, Trixie, who is six years old. She's just started kindergarten and she's so smart and such a good reader. They've put her in third grade immediately that Trixie is 
reporting a lot of what the town is saying back to him. And that's one thing that I think should also be pointed out about the book is more than a lot of her other books, this is about a parents and their child. Trixie is a really important character in this book. And Vic is a very attentive, loving father who has a great relationship with Trixie. And Melinda's indifferent to Trixie. She forgets her at the movie theater when she's supposed to come pick her up. She leaves her at a friend's house overnight, just add, they'll do a sleepover. She's always drunk in front of her daughter. She's always impatient with her daughter. Whereas Vic and Trixie really seem to connect and have deep, uh, if not deep, then rich and interesting conversations with each other and are on the same wavelength about things. They feel like a pair with Melinda as the odd person out within the family unit. Right. And the perception too of Vic as a father is important because um, it's, it's mentioned that Trixie has this child, obviously this childlike idea of morality that she doesn't understand all these lovers coming around or there to bang her mother, you know, and that's sort of reflected in the town's uh, assessment of their marriage as well, because um they see that Vic is a good father and that Vic yes. is actually somebody who is responsible, whereas Melinda is not. And so they just, just naturally side with Vic for that reason. That yeah. he seems like the good one in the marriage, the one who is not cheating and who is attentive to the do- to, to, to Trixie. So he kind of immediately takes on the good guy status for that reason. Everyone and, sees you know, him as the one who is more traditionally good than yeah. uh, she is, but which is a very childlike idea of morality at the same time. And talking about that, one of my favorite things in the book is how Trixie, when um, Trixie hears that everybody's saying you murdered this guy in the swimming pool, uh, and he's like, no, I didn't murder him. And she's, and she's disappointed and refuses to believe it. You know, she, she kind of goes to bed with like, I think you murdered him, you know, because she didn't like Charles Delise, you know, <laughs> and she has a same moral wavelength with him. He's warping her in some way too, that they're just on, when you say on the same wavelength, she's like him in some fundamental way. And I think that because he's creating her too as well, that the way that parents create their children or influence them and affect them and warp them, uh, that just a parent has an incredible effect on who their children are. Um, When he has to explain to her what unconscious means and it's in reference to Melinda being drunk on the couch. I think that really sums up the family dynamic really well right there. Uh, it's funny because I remember being a kid and I remember very speci- I have a very specific memory of my mother explaining to me the definition of unconscious in a completely different context. Uh, so to hear it in this one where it's What specifically was the means, context? You would knock the man out with a hammer? It, w- it was, she was warning me about what to do if we got into a car accident. She Whoa. said, if we ever crash the car and I'm lying here unconscious, do you know what unconscious means? as means if I am passed out, like I'm sleeping, she said, do this and this and this, you know, she was getting me ready uh, in case God forbid there was an accident. So it was in a very kind of nurturing parental way and not in a way of like dealing with like this drunken spouse and mother who, you know, has little to no interest in the family dynamic whatsoever. Yeah. Very fascinating. Um, This book is obviously about, uh, their marriage and is obviously about their dynamic. You mentioned a little bit um, the the sexlessness of Vic, that at one point in the book, he says he could go the rest of his life never sleeping with a woman again. Something Patricia Highsmith, we should talk about, gets into trouble with is 
her relationship to gay men and gay coding, uh, especially in the later Ripley books, she's accused of being homophobic towards gay men at times. And that's something that I wanted to address because it's obviously hangs over this book in some way. I think whatever Vic is, he's abnormal sexuality. I, he's never mentioned being gay. He doesn't talk about feelings towards men in any way. He's obviously loving with Melinda and, and focused on her. He has no interest in getting out. There's but they no... specifically say he's not attracted to her or repulsed by her yes. physically. Yeah. Yes. It's, she goes out of her way to not make him a gay guy. And mm. you're supposed to read it as whatever he is, it's abnormal sexuality. And then because of the history of gay men, abnormal sexuality, being connected to murderers, it gets this thing forced on it of she's talking about gay men being secretly psychopaths and sick. That's not what this book is at all. That's sort of, if you, you know, it's kind of, you know, A uh, equals B, you know, and B is has a relationship to C, therefore there's a relationship between A and C. That's not really what it is with this book. And I think she goes out of her way to make it about this bad relationship, that this book is very definitely not about anything but this bad relationship. And one of the lines that I love most in the book is, there wasn't a word for the way he felt about Melinda, for that combination of loathing and devotion. And I've got to say, this book hits me so incredibly deep of all of Patricia Highsmith's work that this book is to, to call it a crime novel feels incredibly reductive. This is one of the, my favorite books about relationships and asking the question of why do people stay in bad relationships? What are they looking to get out of it? Because that's one of the questions, especially now uh, in my 40s. I definitely had lots of friends who in their 30s were in bad marriages or bad relationships. And uh, you know, most people won't say anything when they see their friend, you know, they're like Horace and just being like, well, you got to do something about it. And they won't articulate, you are, you're with someone who's making you miserable. Why are you doing this? Get out of that relationship. You're unhappy. You're being driven nuts. That person is being horrible to you, right? But I don't understand why people stay in bad relationships and thinking about the problem of being trapped endlessly in a marriage, you're not even trapped. Either of them could leave at any point. He offers her an alimony. He could get a divorce at any point. He's definitely obsessed with being a nonconformist. He doesn't have a dedication to the ideal of marriage, not like the main character in This Sweet Sickness, who's idealized marriage and domesticity to an incredible degree. This is the opposite, is he seems to have some nagging, unflagging belief that they can have something completely unorthodox that's nevertheless domestic happiness, that what they have can be turned into something functional, which is what seems psychotic to about it to me. But you see that in so many human beings. It's such a commonplace idea that this dysfunctional thing can be made, this overtly dysfunctional thing can be made into happiness in some way. And I was wondering, 
what what you thought of that why what do you think Vic stays in this relationship for uh yeah i agree with everything you say 100% we even wrote down a lot of the same quotes here um I, I think this is an amazing analysis of this marriage you understand these characters so well and what becomes kind of insane is that vic is such a likable character you know between his gardening his cooking his carpentry uh the craftsmanship described at uh, the publishing plant his calligraphy even his housekeeping he's a put together interesting person uh his insane interest in glaciers his homegrown herbs i mean just everything about him is very cultured and very interesting and melinda's yeah. the exact opposite of that where she is completely self-absorbed she you know she the, the, the artistic things that she, she's into are like they're like charles delise they're these you know cheesy pianists and you know tony cameron the construction worker who comes along later yeah. plays the clarinet and likes to go out <laughs> hiking exactly and uh what it's what vic calls the discipline of no charm which I think is a great phrase. You know? yeah. um, she's just, you know, trying to get out there and enjoy life and not give a shit. So both of them are pretty much opposed to what marriage is supposed to be about, which is the union of these two people who, you know, are mutually supporting each other and raising a child together. They both really have no use for it whatsoever, but they're both just committed for whatever reason to staying in it. And you kind of think about why this is. And for Vic, it seems more than anything, it's appearances that he actually cares about how people see him and how he comes off as a person so that Melinda, you know, philandering around town isn't such a big deal, except that the men that she ends up with are these complete scumbags who are in his opinion, beneath her and by extension beneath him. Do you think they're complete scumbags? I think the book is located within her point of view enough, his point of view enough that you get that sense. But I also, I think, I think think what makes the book good is, is that Highsmith is as she's definitely puts it in Vic's head and Vic is most sympathetic to Vic. It's from Vic's perspective, but I think she's equally unsympathetic to everyone in this book. I well, think I that would you say can understand. Tony that. Cameron comes along for sure, but Tony Cameron yes. kind of changes the game, but yeah, uh, definitely. They're probably guys who are the, the worst uninteresting, you know, or just not particularly handsome or they're interesting but not to somebody like vic see i think you and i reading it are definitely like tell me about your stale aquaria and your uh, poetry publishing imprint that's interesting to us but there's a lot of people in this world john who hear this guy is a touring pianist who likes to stay out at nightclubs all night with him and that's what you can do with charles delise and that sounds really exciting to them or you can or you can go hiking and bike riding with a big burly laughing gregarious tony cameron who's who's described as kind of a mountain of a man a real man that's also appealing to a lot of people too john i know know? i started off by saying vic is likable vic murders three people in this book yeah (laughs) you know and you know it nothing is a secret he's actually killing people um so obviously you know you're sympathizing towards a guy who is not a good dude um and uh and you're right falling into this kind of under his spell and his kind of belief in everyone but even the town of little wesley which he has set himself up as you know this high-ranking citizen 
they look upon these guys with the same eyes as Victor does, as Vic does. Yes. Um, so again, sort of the reason that he disapproves of them is because he sees other people disapprove of them. You know, beyond just you know running around with Melinda, uh, they're just. I don't they're, think they're, most of them are just is, outsiders is who are you know, from the town. Is relentlessly sympathetic to the dinner party set either. Oh, I don't think I, so at all. No, you know, yeah. I think, no, that, I, I think that they are very boring people as well. I mean, I, a lot yeah. of this is, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is just so insular with, within Vic that, you know, you kind of have to take some of it and leave some of it and kind of make your own interpretations. And, uh, but again, it's the Highsmith magic, right? I mean, she is, she gives Vic her snails, you know, she gives them him qualities of herself. And she's she obviously the one that she you also, she, wants she, you to understand more than anybody else. She makes Don Wilson a writer of detective fiction, and she makes Melinda a serial philanderer who openly cheats on her significant others in front of her significant, with new girlfriends, which Highsmith was notorious for doing herself as well, for sort of dating her girlfriend's friends in front of them and yeah. trading them off. I think that she has... a. Uh, an equal unsympathy to everybody, I would ultimately say. An equal unsympathy, I can agree with that. Yeah, or the sympathy of truth. I think that it's a realm in which moral judgment has been completely drained. I think that's what makes Highsmith special, is that you're not supposed to be going, who is the good or the bad person here? You're supposed to understand Vic is what you're supposed to do in this book and be brought into Vic's thought process and see the world through Vic and be brought to understand uh, the mind of somebody who kill, commits three murders and to be brought into that world and to just the value of truth and exploring that truthfully, whatever yeah. that may be. Well, Vic, too, it's it said, you know, uh, I think he's actually talking about another character, but you could uh, argue about him, too, has Goethe's uh, infradignatium, right? It's something that's beneath one's dignity. Yes. Uh, things that he detests are things that he believes are beneath him. And what we, you were saying earlier about how this is not really a crime novel is right on his brown target because the murders themselves happen almost... Uh, Without thought, I mean, right before the he drowns Charles Delise, he says, it'd be funny if I drowned this guy. Like, literally, it's his thought. Like, I guess I could drown him right here if I wanted to. And then he does. You yeah. know, it just it, that just happens. It just kind of naturally happens. And, of course, the whole thing falls apart, right? Ultimately, not to jump ahead or anything, but the whole thing falls apart when it becomes a classic crime story of like hiding a body and the, the crappy crime writer is the one who figures it out. And that's yeah. why Vic's world goes down is become, it becomes this cliched sort of thing because he never would have thought about, you know, the, the, uh, the actual process of like, of, of crime and like doesn't think forward because it's beneath him to even think about these kind of things, these hacky sort of story that it ultimately becomes at the end and falls apart. I think that's well, that's, 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 yeah, and that's the Highsmith magic as well, is you as a reader have the tension. She makes you go, ah, this fucking lady, this horrible wife, she's accusing him of murder. God, can you believe she's doing this? She's such an asshole. And this guy, Don Wilson, needs to mind his own business, right? Like, just what it was, this guy has something. And, and they're, they're the good right. guys. They're, they're right. correct in any other crime novel. Yeah, they'd be the good guys. They'd be the I'm on to you, and you're not going to get away with it. Yeah, you know, in a way, this sort is of like an inversion of the Postman Always Rings Twice story, right? Where except it's through the a point of view of the husband, the guy who, you know, is seeing this flandering. And instead of him getting murdered, 
he does something about it and he becomes the murderer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, but that's, but to, to sort of reduce Highsmith to who is good and who is bad, I think is, does an incredible disservice to her. And I think that's what ultimately puts her in the um, category outside of crime fiction. Not that, or uh, let me revise what I've been saying about crime fiction. This is, uh, such good writing that it makes the distinction between crime fiction, genre fiction, uh, immaterial. Because this is unquestionably a crime book. And this is, this is more what I should say, is that when crime fiction achieves its, its highest level, the distinction between crime fiction and real fiction becomes immaterial. You know, crime and punishment kind of thing. Right. You know, that is, that is obviously, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment is obviously a progenitor to so many of the cliches of detective fiction, up, even up now to Law and Order. If you read Crime and Punishment, you'll be like, oh, they're just fucking doing Columbo here. This is unreal. <laughs> How much yeah. it's just one more thing, you know, with the the, the crazy dyspeptic. Yeah, and the way Vicky's sort of getting stuff. away with these crimes is that the, again, the characters in the in the book are assigning good and bad people, you know, and they're just reading it like it's a real crime thing. So if he's not acting like he killed somebody, if he's not acting like a jealous husband, he must not have done it. And then at the end, when he actually is freaking out and is actually rushing to cover his tracks, that's when he'll get tripped up because suddenly he is the cliched criminal in a crime book, you know? Yeah. Well, it's also, he understands the the formula very well. Yeah. When, when the walls are closing in, he ultimately strangles Melinda to death and sort of doesn't remember doing it. Right. Hmm. That's the big climax of, of the book. And that's clearly what he's done all along. After he's murdered again, after he's murdered Tony he Cameron. He murders Tony Cameron by throwing a big rock at his head. He's taken Tony Cameron, who's the pachyderm. A, 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 contras- yes, a, a, a contractor to the quarry to be like, hey, have you thought about developing the quarry? Or whatever, you know. Uh, Tony Cameron and Melinda are supposedly going to run away to Mexico together. And that morning, he sees Tony Cameron just on the street by coincidence, drives him out to a quarry, throws a huge rock at his head, the pachyderm is stunned. He has a kind of, uh, was the word like a gorilla-ish stupidity? There's something like that phrase like that to him. And then he gets hit with another rock and falls down in the quarry and dies. And then Vic ties a rock to him with his snow chains and pushes him into the quarry to sink down. He eventually, Don Wilson eventually sees him sort of fucking around at the quarry again and puts two and two together. And Vic goes home and murders Melinda sort of in a rage as his last act that he can do. And when I asked you, why do you think they don't get divorced or separate? What I think this book is really perceptive about is because what Vic doesn't leave Melinda because what he really wants to do is kill Melinda. He really wants to inflict misery on her in some way, ultimately, and can't let go of their dynamic until that misery is inflicted. It's it's not even about himself. You know, after he kills Delise, there's actually a line, he remembered a dark, hard knot of repressions and resentments in himself. And it was if his murdering of Delise had untied the knot. And I think he wants to untie that knot more further. There's a bunch of knots on a rope leading back to Melinda, and he's trying to untie them all and finally get to the one. But I think that people get trapped in relationships where the inflicting of cruelty and sort of the psychological warfare that couples get trapped in with each other is the entire reason 
they stay together, that he can't leave Melinda because his only plan, it's not a plan, his only secret deep desire, the only way he can untie the knot to her is murder. He won't be able to let go of it. Maybe not murder, but certainly some kind of massive cathartic release of violence that can't even be sated by murdering her lovers, you That's know, an and humiliating take. her in the community and all of these type of things. That's He's tied take. I to her via negative, violent emotions that he can't contend with. That's interesting. I wouldn't go as far to say that he ultimately wanted to inflict uh, pain and death upon her. I would. I was thinking mainly that his way of controlling the relationship, emotional um, pain. The, yeah. the strangling of her is just a kind of emotional pain okay. that right. he wants to inflict. Well, 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 their entire marriage is based up, uh, based basically on uh, him annoying her. <laughs> you know, him with his patience her. that yeah. she can't hurt him. Yeah, that's his revenge: is that she can't hurt him is that everything she's doing to hurt and humiliate him, he, it just rolls off his back. It's a kind of revenge to not be affected by her. And I, I really, I recognize that in people. I recognize that in myself as somebody who does not uh, lose my temper uh, very often and who doesn't yell at people in, when I'm in a relationship and, and uh, wants to approach things rationally, at a certain point you realize your total over-rationality and calmness is something you're actually doing to sort of inflict psychological torture. When somebody wants you to react, right, and you don't react, you're not, you're refusing to untie their knot. And I think that's a lot of what he's doing is he's refusing to, you know, Marriage is tying the knot. He's refusing to untie the knot. Uh, yeah, I would say that, you know, she wants to annoy, he wants to annoy her by uh, by defeating her in these kind of winning these little battles. Uh, like refusing to go to bed when the lover's over and then being like, do you guys want to have breakfast now? When the guys are like so drunk and clearly like, I thought we were going to fuck. What, right. what am I doing here at 6 a.m. and I got to have eggs with this guy now? What, what am I doing? Without real, well, without exactly realizing that they say at one point that uh, his jealousy is what keeps her going to her suitors out of contrariness, you know yeah. that, that that kind of sets up their thing, right? Is that he uh, thwarts her and then she wants to win the next battle. He wants to, she wants to come at her, come at him with something even worse, which kind of manifests itself uh, pretty extremely in Tony Cameron, who I think it'd be hard to doubt that Highsmith hates this character that he comes in, he's loud, he's boorish, you know, and he is so ridiculously disrespectful of the household and of Vic, you know, just so open about his relationship and that this is the guy she's going to run off with suddenly this, you know, offer of a divorce and giving her, you know, um, uh, out, you know, paying her, uh, alimony and allowance giving her an allowance every year suddenly is not acceptable because she wants to run off to mexico with this goddamn motherfucker um so i think it just becomes a well, thing where you know lie. you it's tell yourself it's not the cheating it's cheating with this guy yeah that's the lie you tell your well exactly because you know when we themselves. when we read about vic sitting in his garage watching his beloved snails uh edgar and hortense about to fuck yeah. um 
you know. Not to fuck, they're in love. They're about to make love. (laughs) It's pointed out that he has thousands of snails and these two will only mate with each other. And that of the thousand or so snails he has, of like 90% of the offspring, 95% is from Edgar and Hortense. When he's watching them have this devotion to each other. Um, but he's the one on the outside looking in at this. Stop miscategorizing the snail's feelings. No, (laughs) go on. I know exactly what these snails are feeling. Um, I'm I'm a snail. Um, Snail, (laughs) the snail. snail. But it's also also all projection. Snails are asexual. Edgar and Hortense, it's not a male and female snail, should be pointed out. That's another thing that Vic is projecting all this insanity onto it. Right, right, right. Either one could lay the eggs. Um, But yes, their devotion to each other. uh, This idea that he's watching them when he's watching Melinda with her mates you get the idea that what he'd want is maybe not even like himself and Melinda in a good relationship, but just someone he approves of that maybe poet Brian Ryder would be the right guy to like come in, you know, that he'd want to actually. No, he feels heartbroken. You don't think? I feel like he feels completely heartbroken. I feel like he's, that's the final straw more than Tony Cameron is when the young poet who's tall and dashing comes along and writes a poem for Melinda right before he leaves and gives it to Vic to give to her and is saying all these like, she's such a remarkable women type thing. You get the sense that Vic's like, God, he's completely insipid. Now I got to publish this guy's book of poetry. You know, you get that sense of the worst betrayal is when it's him. And I think he's specifically there to be the deepest knight. That he wouldn't want to admit that there is a better man than him in a way right? That, or someone yeah. who could win her over for legitimate reasons. This is a guy whose poetry is good enough that he's willing to publish it and now has won her heart. It's sort of the same way more... he, he, he could dismiss the Charlie Delisles for saying, or, or when, um, when Tony starts playing the clarinet and yeah. he says every note was right, but, this, but the music was completely passionless and it was completely off. Yeah. You know, he's immediately judging these things because he is above them because he has you know so much class above them but this guy who he has judged as being worthy of being put out as a book has now been taken by melinda he does finally find out that he is you know maybe it's not what he wanted maybe it's not like a perfect i don't think he he ever wanted that i think it's another instance where he goes even this guy buys her bullshit i think that's what it is i think he has real contempt for melinda that that he wants to revenge that contempt in some way because it's contempt she has for him that he's he thinks he's this really interesting nice uh calm intelligent guy that lives life the right way why isn't she madly in love with him Mm -hmm. right she's an insult to his self-esteem so he thinks of course she attracts these losers because she's a loser if she were capable of attracting interesting people it'd be somebody like me and then when he comes along it's like oh no it's just everybody likes her maybe it's the problem with me maybe it's something i'm doing you know yeah, I think we're, arguing, but we're, we're agreeing yeah. i think you know i think this is a revelation and i agree with you that this is might be what pushes him over the edge ultimately more than you know falling into the whole hiding tony cameron's body and getting yeah. you know what, what can i do don with the dragon the, wilson exactly if the even the author of xenofan <laughs> with the little <laughs> skeletal branches of leaves printed on the end of each after each poem. If even he, who's going to uh, give 
give me his dad's ring. Or what's the object his dad gives him? The cufflinks. His dad's cut. If even he who gives him his dad's cufflinks uh, is is taken under her spell, maybe the spell is real. You know, and I think that's part of part of it too, is trying to uh, separate your identity from somebody whose identity you've made the decision to fuse with, and what does their identity mean? And if you want to reject that part of your own identity now your significant other that you've chosen to fuse with, that you have your couple identity and you want to reject some of that, you should be rejecting something worthless rather than giving away something valuable, I think is in the back of, of uh, a lot of people's heads. And if she does actually have value, it's even more painful that she's rejecting him. You know, if, if even the, the handsome young poet who is, uh, who she's, very taken with, but she also doesn't differentiate. I think that's also uh, an insult to him is that there's no difference between Tony Cameron and the poet is that she likes them all the same uh, mm-hmm. and that she's not differentiating between her conquests, that she's interested in having an interesting time, which I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm sympathetic to her. You know, I, Milan Kundera yeah. in his one book talks about uh, in, uh, in, in, um, in Art of the Novel, he talks about there's different kinds of womanizers, right? There's lyric women, womanizers, which are men that are looking for the perfect woman who doesn't exist. So they date all of these women and sleep with all of these women, have relationships with all these women that disappoint them because they're not the ideal they're searching for. That's the guy in this sweet sickness, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have the epic womanizer, which is somebody who wants to experience all the incredible variety there is of life and every different type of woman and every different type of sexual experience and romantic experience and domestic experience, right? They just want to consume it all. And that's what Melinda is, I think. I think Melinda just wants to know tons of different people and tons of different ways of approaching the world. And it's an interesting contrast. You bring up Vic, who calls Tony the pachyderm. He has nicknames for all of them, derisive little nicknames that he differentiates between their personalities. Melinda actually sharply describes all of the men in different ways. That's very perceptive about their differences between each other and their differences from Vic. She seems hyper attuned to what these different men have to offer her and offer life. And I think her domestic dissatisfaction is something I'm, I'm sympathetic to, which is it, when you enter into a relationship, you're giving up all of these other possibilities for existence and reality. And why does she want to give that up to be a 50s housewife? wife you know why would she want to do that and so i can definitely see her perspective and maybe i come with a more natural sympathy to it uh that makes me understand where she's coming from than somebody like vic who will simmer in a miserable relationship forever which is something that that i just i find impossible to understand on a personal level to a point where it seems overtly wicked that if you are staying in a relationship in which you are being humiliated and made unhappy you are up to no good yourself that you are contributing to your own unhappiness and your own misery in a way that i wicked is the word I would describe to it. You're, you're inflicting this pain on yourself in a way that I find distasteful, maybe, if not wicked. So you're shooting down the very notion of gastropoda. No, I... 
I love, I also love the little lies Vic tells though when he's trying to tweak people, you know, where he's like, oh yeah, we can eat the snails, you know, that kind of lie. I love to torture the snails. I set them at snail races on and have them crawl across the razor's edge. And it's of course like, of course he's never had a snail crawl across a razor or raced snails against each other. Just the weird little lies he tells when he's trying to disturb people, I find delightful. I mean, I ultimately find... Vic uh, delightful and someone that I would love to be friends with is ultimately <laughs> what I feel about Vic is that I would be, I'd be Hor- uh, Horace, you know, Melner going, Vic, you got to do something about this shit, man. You know, like, <laughs> you, you're really making yourself unhappy here and maybe you can turn a corner. I don't know if this is curable though, you know, that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. It's great. I love the supporting characters. And I should point out too, there's no good place to bring this up, but when she does write about, when she does turn to the crime, when it's about the murder, she still writes brilliantly. You know, she writes yeah. uh, when they're trying to revive Charlie. And she says, nobody could come back to life like in the light like this. It was light for dying. That's a beautiful sentence. Great. Uh, She's a know, great writer. She's a great fucking writer. There's no sentence that like right. so many of these books we've been reading. I just get the like, this guy's getting, getting, you know, paid by the word, dime a word kind of, guy, <laughs> you know, uh, just, just this person is not, this person is interesting for a variety of reasons. They are not a good writer, you know, and that's, that's what we've, we've run into a lot recently, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> You, it's funny you mentioned the supporting characters being good. I was just watching an interview with her where she talked about which she was asked what bad reviews have affected her. And she said, they don't really bother me at all. And in fact, I like the bad ones that speak with some kind of specificity or originality, uh, such as there's one reviewer who always complains about how underwritten my secondary characters are. And I, I find that really interesting that he thinks I underwrite my secondary characters. And the interviewer was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, the interviewer was like, does that make you want to do better? And you can just see the look on her face because she's so uncomfortable around other people just <laughs> yeah, being like. I couldn't disagree more. I well, mean, just like, section... I, what do you mean want to do better? I'm one of the most famous novelists in the world. Like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Anyway. Well, just when Harold Carpenter enters the, the story briefly, you know, he... Uh, is introduced as a psychotherapist who is in the area for you know a few weeks and Vic suspects that he is uh, a detective who's been hired by uh, Melinda and by Don Wilson you know to spy on him and then the idea that maybe he's another suitor another paramour for her also hired comes using up. Vic's own money by the way it, she's right, trying right. to furtively draw money out of the bank account and he's figuring it out to pay this guy with his own money to make to prove that he murdered Charlie um and this great line too to talk about him after he finds out that he's a fraud he is not in fact a psychotherapist uh who described him as borderline schizophrenic and he says about harold uh he's borderline something betwixt and between something you step over and forget yeah and i love too fucking great how his uh characters out of detective fictionness harold carpenter are what Mm. make Vic see through him and sort of just steamroll him like harold carpenter's got no chance because he's a regular character that would turn up in in a Coronel Woolrich book. You know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah. he's just, of course, Vic, of the Highsmith character is just going to steamroll a guy like that. Not even steamroll him. He's just, he's just a butterfly that Vic catches and releases. 
you yeah. know, that's exactly. his relationship to this kind of thing. Yeah, but when he is in the narrative, then it becomes, you know, you're interested. You want to know who this guy actually is. So every character that enters becomes interesting on their own, you know, becomes, uh, even though Vic is, you know, the, the constant throughout, anytime these side characters come to the foreground, they're great. You know, you really like these characters. So there is there is one other thing I want to talk about um, that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a big subject to open before we move on to our dessert pairings, uh, which is that... Um, I really hate talking about biography when discussing artworks, uh, especially in the modern academic context that research the author, who they were, get biographical details, read it into the book, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we've been doing a fair amount of that with Highsmith because Highsmith is a larger than life character whose biographical details get read so much into her work and her work gets so positioned through understanding her as a closeted lesbian writer uh, uh, of crime fiction, right? That, and especially she was a very dyspeptic, misanthropic, frequently. Um, she gets accused of being anti-Semitic, but she's really insanely anti-Israel is what she was. She gets accused of being anti-gay, but I think she's more anti-decadence than anything else. So when she's talking about, uh, in some of the later Ripley books, like the gay scene and her obvious repulsion at it, uh, has more to do with that than, than anything else. Um, she is a difficult character and figure. She's definitely also been accused of being racist in a few books for her racial depictions of things. Uh, but that is almost none of that stuff comes from the book and almost all of it comes from her personal diaries and interviews she said and materials of hers that she never necessarily intended to have published or be made public. I think a lot about with her, with Kafka and Max Brode, where Max Brode uh, who was the executor of Kafka's estate after he died and published a bunch of things that Kafka had specifically asked to be um, destroyed, that Kafka had specifically asked to be destroyed, and um, then also had written a roman Aklef uh, about, uh, not about Kafka, but in which there's this character Garda, which is a, a thinly veiled depiction of Kafka that created this very um, Christian transcendental image of Kafka that persisted for a really long time. And so much of the bad scholarship and bad interpretation of Kafka and idiocies said about Kafka come from the biographical understanding of him that was overseen by Max Brode, as opposed to just reading the work, which really speaks for itself and says very different things than the biographical academic interpretation of him that steep everything he says in these research materials, right? There's the same thing that happens with Highsmith where you have uh, Joan Shankar who wrote the big English language biography of her um, setting the tone for what we're supposed to understand Highsmith uh, to be. And by Shankar's own, uh, uh, Schechner, uh, Shankar's own admission, she wrote 
about Highsmith like she was creating a character in fiction. If you see interviews with her, she essentially talks about like, I got into her head and I wrote as her based on what I had read in her diaries and books and I had walked around her house and I started creating her the way you'd write a piece of fiction. And when you read that book, it reads like fiction, right? It reads like that. And it made me think a lot about, right, Errol Morris has this documentary about Temple Grandin called Stairway to Heaven, right? She's an autistic woman who designs um, these humane slaughterhouses for cows. And she's very closely empathetic with cows. So she designs the slaughterhouses. So the feelings of the cows, well, they'll never experience terror and misery on the way to their death, the way they do in normal slaughterhouses. And Errol Morse was uh, um, inspired to make this short documentary for a series first person because Oliver Sacks, uh, famously an, an anthropologist on Mars, Oliver Sacks, the um, uh, neuroscientist, had written about Temple Grandin and written essentially she has an inability to empathize or understand with people or connect with emotions or the world. And Errol Morris had met her incidentally and been like, that's absolutely fucking untrue. Right? And if I put her on screen, you'll see that Oliver Sacks, what he's saying, who has created this biography and the entire understanding of Temple Grandin, is just not saying something truthful, that he's invented this fictional character of Temple Grandin, which my movie immediately undermines, right? And I think that when I see interviews with Patricia Highsmith, she does not resemble the biographical materials that have been assembled uh, about her so much. She's somebody who's painfully shy, who doesn't like being around people at all, who obviously feels a lot of anxiety about trying to explain herself while not uh, inadvertently giving herself away and coming out of the closet and damaging her career in that way. And I think that you have writers like Shen Carr and then Phyllis Nagy, uh, who, uh, who wrote the script for Carol that was nominated for an Academy Award, did like an interview tour where she very much like, here's the picture of Patricia Highsmith that's based on her own feelings about who Patricia Highsmith are that I don't think match up with the person. But beyond that, I think all distract from what the fucking books are and that you are way better off reading the books and the short stories and avoiding all of the biographical information about her, that Highsmith, more than almost any author I know, is getting drowned in the swimming pool. She's the Charles Delise getting drowned by the biographers and the biographical information, uh, that you should read the books and stick to the work and stop worrying about everything else outside of it. That she is like Kafka, that just this literary academic image is is threatening to consume the art, which is far more valuable and superior than that biographical academic image. So this book was written while Highsmith was vacationing in Mexico with her girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, is your dessert the Temple Graydon episode of First Person or is no, it something it's not. else? But I just wanted, John, you're somebody who does meticulous research. And that's something I like about you. And I like that you do. And you're always unearthing interesting facts. Do you ever feel with Highsmith like 
this image of who she is. I wish I didn't know she liked snails because that makes this like this thing I'm trying to decode now the meaning of the snails and knowing that she loves snails so much that she smuggled them on a transatlantic flight under her breasts so she wouldn't have to go through customs with them her pet snails one of the truly gross and horrifying stories around her do you wish but you, you love that story though I do love that story <laughs> she's a great person and an interesting person and I love knowing that shit about her and I I love the incredible heat and insanity to her diaries and personal writings. She is somebody who really is unhinged and really is like her characters as much as in public she would deny that and was a prude in public and seemed unaware of how she was like her own characters in some ways. But to me, biography can be fascinating, though, for the same reason that these contradictions are interesting, that we talked about Cornell Woolrich and what a clearly weird guy he was and how cruel he was. Uh, needlessly to this woman that he married briefly, right? And how that's interesting because he understands cruelty so well when he writes, especially in Waltz into Darkness. It's the same with Highsmith where, you know, she just is someone who understands um, human dynamics and the way that these characters relate to each other uh, in ways that, you know, we know or are told that you know are positions that she had against other people that she understands anti this and anti that from other characters that she would have this birth of understanding about that while at the same time allegedly having this you know these prejudices herself that kind of stuff is interesting but i agree the work is amazing on its own and doesn't really need that don't you feel um, like I wouldn't there's certain examples entirely. with, with suit? I definitely don't entirely, and it's unavoidable if you have your eyes open and are curious. You you kind of can't get away with it. But don't you think? Maybe there's this. Maybe there's a tipping point, a turning point. Yeah, maybe there's this. I just started a Stephen King book, right, called Revival. The very first paragraph of it, he talks about. Um, uh, you know, it's like that guy at a Barnes and Noble who's looking at the graphic novels and you have to move past him to get to the magazines, right? And I immediately thought, you never have to move past a guy at a Barnes and Noble looking at graphic novels to get to the magazines, which are always like right at the front of the store. He's never been at a Barnes and Noble. What the fuck is he talking about? Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, just, you know, immediately from the work, knowing yeah. that Stephen King is talking about something he doesn't know. Um, yeah. So things can get revealed, I think, about a writer, either through the work or from what you know about them. And certainly knowing about Stephen King in forms makes me satisfied that he's probably not been in a Barnes and Noble, uh, as never have to push back the jerk looking at the graphic novels to get to his magazines. Um, and, you know, everything what, what is reading. What year was this book reason. written that somebody's buying magazines? 2013. Okay, that's still plausible. <laughs> No, Barnes and Nobles I, are still around. Borders is the one that's cool. I think that it threatens. There are specific artists where the mythos around them threatens to consume the art. And I think she's one of them. Where I wish I heard half as much talk about her books and the plot of her books and the themes in her books and the ideas and characters and situations as I do about the person herself and the background material and sort of the... Uh, academic bi biographical material. And I'm limiting the academic end with it as well. Sort of the academic approach needs the biographical material that, that an academic could never just write, 
here's my thoughts on this, you know, that that's right, not right, right. sort of an acceptable academic approach in some way that it needs to have original research and new interviews and that kind of thing. <laughs> you need writers like H.P. Lovecraft where the writing uh, reflects the person a little bit uh, too too closely. Well, he's another guy where I feel like the, the biography... Uh, which is more interesting than a lot of those stories and a lot of those writings. Like the idea of Lovecraft is obviously more interesting and compelling than the writing of Lovecraft. You know, it's, it's to his benefit there. People talk about Lovecraft and they don't have to talk about the specific shitty stories that are terrible <laughs> and no good to read, written by a bad writer who is everything people accuse him of being and worse. You know, and I think Highsmith is the opposite where it's to her detriment, her art's detriment, that the story of her, the person, means more. You know, that what are her thoughts on the film adaptations and what was the process well, That's exactly of what I was going to bring up next to say, you know. Who was her girlfriend and that kind of thing. Is that she always had problems with the film adaptations. You know, she didn't think that many of them reflected the work. No, you're inheriting a biographical idea that's not really true also. Oh, look what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I've read a bunch of interviews with her, and generally her attitude is, I wasn't happy with it, but I stayed out of it, so I sort of have no one to blame, and I'm really more unhappy that I didn't say anything than what the final thing was. You know, it's just, it's like her talking about, I, I was just listening to her talking about uh, The American Friend, where she uh, says that I read the first draft of the script and I hated it. I hated this thing he had written. Uh, I couldn't believe how, how disgusting it was. It was repulsive. It was about uh, the mafia making porn, pornographic films. And I, I told uh, the writer who I'm now friends with, and Benders, who I think is immensely talented, I told him that I didn't like this and he made it a very small subplot and changed it. And I thought, why, why don't I tell more people what, what they're doing with my scripts that I like or dislike, but they also don't want you, you know, it's sort of, I think she has a more human relationship to all of that. And I think she likes the ones that were a big success, like Purple Moon, and doesn't like the ones that weren't a success, uh, is what it boils down to. But I think that that's, I don't know, I just felt like, I felt like with her, whenever I read an interview with her or read the work itself, hear her in her own voice, I feel like Errol Morris meeting Temple Grandin and being like, Oliver Sacks is full of shit. That's what I feel like every time with her. That's interesting. Obviously, you've read a lot more of her biographical and interview stuff than I have, so uh, I don't have a strong opinion on it. But I understand what you're saying. It's interesting. I've been trying to find the propaganda comics she wrote during World War II. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the ones with horrifying titles. Like, I don't even know what they are, but they are every bit right that horrific uh but yeah this um this book was adapted into a french film called uh oupre fonds uh by michel deville with uh, literally deep water yeah and uh jean-louis uh trignant uh i haven't seen it and obviously haven't seen the new film by adrian lynn which is his first film since unfaithful 20 years he hasn't directed a movie and unfaithful is that old yeah, and Unfaithful too. I remember being number one, really surprised by it. I liked it. Yes. And also it was a, a big hit. I'm surprised that he didn't take that and use that and uh, get some other films made before he kind of disappeared is. for a while. I was surprised too, because all I knew was that it was a loose Chabrol adaptation. And I was really shocked by how good it was, because I certainly don't think of 
probably unfairly, I don't think of Adrian Lyne as being a good director. Uh, yeah. But I don't have any objections to any of his films that I can think of. No, so I'm kind of excited for it. Obviously, I'd see anything with Anna de Arms in it, and uh, I'm excited and, for that. And I would see anything with Ben Affleck in it. I like Ben Affleck. I don't see him, though, as this character. I'm curious to see what they kind of do with this character. Is he not playing Tony Cameron? How could he be playing anybody <laughs> but Tony Cameron? Um, and here's a little fun fact. Uh, this new movie, uh, which is called Deep Water and is co-written by the director of Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, uh, will be Disney's first erotic film since 1994's Color of Night. Oh, another delightful masterpiece uh, let me ask so you whether, who did you so whether lynn is yeah. able to you know uh do anything as profound as the lashing of trees in austria as described in this book you know i doubt yeah. but we'll it should be a fun movie. who do you think would be good casting for Vic? well, well i've like got that. something in my dessert to to to, to put forward as the, the casting of Vic. although when i was reading it i was imagining um uh patrick warburton a little bit and then uh, a little bit Vic? of uh yeah mm-hmm. he's described as being doughy and small is he small specifically? I don't remember that part of it. Yes. He's doughy and then he loses weight. Like the, the murders, like, you know, <laughs> make him a, a more physically. Uh, I was picturing happy. the whole time, uh, and this you'll understand immediately when I do my dessert. I was picturing John Rubin, our former professor, John Rubin. <laughs> I was picturing for this. But uh, Toby Jones, I was also picturing. Toby Jones. That's interesting because, you know, who I immediately cast in my mind as Tony Cameron was Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Giamatti wouldn't have been a bad Vic either. I think he's a little too hangdog. I think there needs to be a yeah. quiet dignity to his overt weakness, is how I would describe Vic. Which I will do my dessert first, then it'll bring us to the dessert. And I picked 10 Rillington Place. Uh, the Richard Fleischer movie uh, starring Richard Attenborough who I think the way Attenborough looks in uh, in Tim Rillington Place would have made quite a good uh, Vic and it's based on a true story, a real serial killer, John Christie uh, who uh, that's the name of the address where he committed his murders and he was famously um, sort of a quiet intellectual who was known as a medical professional, he was sort of seen as being a, a tasteful, respectable member of the community who would uh, drug and murder women sort of unexpectedly. But this is, uh, it's a, it's Fleischer obviously made a lot of great films before he, he developed his late career reputation as sort of a hack journeyman. I think that Fleischer is if, uh, sort of, the way Highsmith elevates the phrase genre fiction, uh, uh, Fleischer elevates the phrase journeyman, I think is fair to say. And it's a, it's a really um, stunning, unforgettable film. And Attenborough is, is phenomenal in it. But it has uh, that same quality of the total depravity in the life of the mind of a quiet, respectable uh, person. It is a great movie. I think maybe you are basing casting of Vic on the physicality more than I am. I'm thinking more of like the fact that he is has a reputation in the community and that he charms people and that the women, the wives are obviously all into Vic, you know, and there's like every, uh, every bit of evidence that he could be like, you know, a Lothario if he wanted to, that like, you know, he could charm Melinda if she had any interest in that. Um, so I, I went kind of classic leading man with it. I was thinking someone more like Michael Douglas to play Vic, honestly, and Kathleen Turner playing Melinda. 
which is but why is, my but somebody dessert... totally sexless okay what's your dessert oh my god this is a great choice <laughs> My dessert is Danny DeVito's film The War of the Roses, produced by uh, James L. Brooks, um, based on the novel by Warren Adler. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's an epic tale of divorce between these two characters who have been together and have children, um, but are at war with each other because she wants the house that they live in the beautiful, spectacular house that has become the foundation of their whole union, and he refuses to give it up, and so they literally spend the movie trying to murder each other, do themselves uh, uh, harm, uh, and had that great scene where she claims that she is serving him his dog for dinner, which was so beautifully homaged in the Always Sunny episode, Mac and Dennis moved to the suburbs. Um, so because of this movie, I can see Vic and Melinda uh, being played by these characters, especially since Turner... Uh, for Turner would be a flip side of her character from Body Heat in a lot of ways, you know, where she is sort of the uh, unsuccessful vixen in this case, you know, someone who is not able to get the upper hand of the of the person. And again, this all kind of speaks to the inversion of the classic uh, noir crime story that Highsmith kind of pulls off really beautifully in this book. Um, so again, the, the, the relationship of these characters is not exactly the same as Vic and Melinda, but I think... It's uh, it's like the raging unhinged id version of yeah. Deep Water. It's a perfect choice, John. And it's ways. definitely a great tale about marriage and has a lot of smart things to say about it. This is another film, just like uh, we were just talking about with um, Unfaithful, which was uh, a huge hit. It like really did well and it was really popular, but I feel like nobody talks about it anymore. Yes, that's in my file of we discuss these movies where I say I haven't ever heard anyone mention moon over parador in 25 <laughs> years just these movies that were hits or were certainly big enough at the time that a kid understood them to be a pop cultural something that just have disappeared from the from the the discourse but i guess you're i guess you're right i wouldn't have expected that that was a hit except that I know ads were for it everywhere. And for a long time, I was confused about the historical War of the Roses because of that movie when I was like a youngster and a teenager. Yeah, sure, it was, sure. I would try and connect the real War of the Roses to uh, that movie in some way and figure out what it meant. My earliest memory of it, my mom is coming up a lot in this episode about Patricia Highsmith, weirdly, um, is that my mom told me the whole movie. She's like, I watched this comedy. And she told me the whole movie. And I was like, that doesn't sound funny. <laughs> that doesn't sound funny. Oh, that sounds horrible. It's very um, good. It's, and it's I like, just, yeah. in my head, connected that Danny DeVito directed it and always suddenly played homage to it. Of course it did. <laughs> I didn't make that connection right away. Um, but it's a great movie. It's really good. It's really well, it's a really smart film. It's, I always love when people describe movies to you in depth. I feel like I don't have that in my life anymore. My son always asks me to describe movies in incredible oh, my depth. Daughter, my youngest daughter, Luna, now wants us to describe every movie to her. Scary in, in, movies especially. Incredible depth. An incredible yeah. depth. Do you remember when we saw Serendipity in Queens with uh, the deceased Peter Gellis and the young woman came and sat down in front of us and got on her phone and proceeded to describe the entire John Cusack, Kate Beckinsale movie to the person on the phone. Do you remember that, John? Of that course, experience? it was very memorable. And now he's buying the book or something. The only time that's Oh, he sees her note in the book. <laughs> yeah, he's going through the door and I was too dumbfounded to say anything about 
to stop her. One it of my first cell phone experiences too. I was like, is this what the cell phone future is going to be like? These devices I refuse to get? Deep Water, one of my favorite Highsmiths, amazing book. Chris, tell us what we're going to read, be reading um, for amazing. December. Amazing. Wait, I don't want to get off Deep Water just yet. Okay, yeah, no, go ahead, please. This book is amazing. Yeah. This book, I, um, this sweet sickness, I probably feel closer to in some way. Uh, this sweet sickness feels like mine. This book, I think, might be her best book. It's like this or Ripley, right? She's got some very good books, but this one today, this one tore my heart out. And I, you know, we've given spoilers. I will say I will not read the final lines from the book, but you should read this book to get to that final paragraph, which is just tears, the whole thing tears your guts apart. You know, this this book really affected me this time. It's such a slow burn. At one point, Vic describes himself as uh, there was a delayed reaction in a lot of his emotions where he wouldn't realize what he was feeling until weeks later or wouldn't feel an impact until well after it had happened. And I feel like that's how it is with this book is you don't feel a lot when the murders happen in them. But then at the end, you're just like torn apart by this whole thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I really was completely blown away by it this time. I was, I was just, you know, all of that kind of stuff, all of that kind of praise for this book about- Absolutely. It's kind of the, like you finish and then you swing a, to do a high five, but nobody's there and you feel a little embarrassed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's more like you finish it and then you look up into the distance and look at the fresh body hanging from the gallows and wonder about the meaning of justice and law in this universe about right and wrong and the unknowability of ourselves and others. And you look into the middle distance and wonder when your time at the gallows will come. I had that thought too. Uh, one thing though I did <laughs> want to think about it was, I did want to say about before we wrapped up was uh, applesauce with an egg white beaten into it for desserts is apparently a real thing called applesauce meringue or applesauce snow. Uh, ah. But I've never heard of such a thing. I'm super allergic to egg whites. They make me violently ill. And when I read that, I'm also allergic to apples. And when I read that, I was like feeling physical pain to read that description. I used to, before I understood that it was egg whites I was allergic to, I used to drink Pisco Sours back when I drank. And I would be like, I feel like I'm going to die. And I just remember the foamy eggness of them and being like, when they read that. I was like, that can't possibly be any good. Even if I wasn't allergic to eggs, that does not sound any good. And and applesauce meringue. (laughs) Read this book. It will not be like the murders to Vic, which he describes as a caesura of of his experience, like a mild interruption in his regular life. It will be something you will definitely remember. John? Next month, we are very excited to have the the fellas from Filmagrana, our favorite Spanish language film site, on to discuss The Stars, My Destination by, and I've never read it, and I just forgot the name of the author. What is the name of the from Alfred Bester. And so we are very excited to talk about that. They are based down in Colombia, Nicholas uh, Vivrasekas and Daniel Castro. And we are going to have them on to talk about this book, which is their selection, uh, which uh, I've never read, but I know it is a, a big favorite of John Carpenter is basically all I know about this book. Have you read it, John? I have. Okay. Excited to read it again. 
awesome. And I'm excited to talk to those guys. It should be a great episode. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks for talking about this book with me, John. I hope I wasn't too intense tonight. <laughs> I know I know I'm a you know makes pretty, for a good copy. Pretty chill guy. <laughs> pretty laid back, easy to do with fellow. I'm a real Patricia Highsmith. Is that was her reputation, right? Very easy to deal with. Not a cigarette machine that destroyed the lives of everyone she touched. It might be I might be understanding the details of her life wrong. Awesome. Well, um, Good night, John, on that note. Oh, I thought we were just going to let the music carry us out. <laughs> um, I never listened to these. I just assume that's what you do every time. We need, a, we need a tag off. We need a final sign. And we're going to decide on it right now. Excelsior. Oh. Be tender. So obviously cut be out. Be tender to those you love. So obviously cut out. to those you despise. <laughs> <laughs>